Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Bianca Gates, the CEO and co-founder of footwear brand Birdies. I asked Bianca about how she's filling a white space with fashionable slippers and how her experience at Facebook set her up for success as a DTC brand founder. That's next. Hey, Bianca, welcome. Hi, thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to be in New York City. Oh my gosh. For two weeks. For two weeks. Oh my gosh. This is the first of my two-week marathon. Oh my gosh. What's behind this? What drove this trip? What you just thought it was about time. It was it was always time to be here. It's yeah. always a good time. Um, we're doing a bunch of focus groups here, starting here, then Chicago, then San Francisco, meeting with you, yes. uh, meeting with some old friends. I'm having dinner tonight, as I mentioned, with Andy Dunn. Um, so it's just, you know, a, a variety of meetings. Um that carry me through the end of next week. Amazing. Tell me about focus groups. Have, have you done this before? We haven't. Um, we have considered it. We've obviously done focus groups just directly with our customers, asking them, you know, why they chose us. But we haven't really dug into everybody else, um, yeah. what's in their closet. So we're going into people's homes to study what they're buying, what's in their closets. You know, why would they consider birdies versus other shoes, how they see us. We're also talking to current customers and why they purchased us, their usage behavior. You know, we started off as a slipper. Yes. Turns out everybody's wearing us everywhere. And so we just sort of want to follow along that journey and dig in a little bit more into both the qualitative and quantitative data. Great. So those folks that are not current customers, where are you finding them? Who are these ladies? We are working with a consulting firm who okay. is helping us find these people who are um, generously welcoming us in, welcoming us into their homes, um, asking them a bunch of questions. And actually, we're not supposed to tell them we're from Birdies, so we are just there to to figure out, you know, to find which shoes they're currently carrying in their closet. We're going to bring a bunch of different shoes and get a sense for like which ones they would choose and which ones they wouldn't. And I'm really nervous. You know, it's like showing your baby to strangers and say, do you think it's cute? And if they say no, you just want to be like, oh, my God, this is the worst day ever. These are my shoes. These are my shoes. Um, you have to be somewhat composed. But at the same time, you know, data really does um, help you understand where you need to go, where you need to double down. So it's important to do. So I'm going to have to be very calm. Yes. And open-minded in these focus groups. And you're creeping in people's houses. It sounds like my ultimate dream. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Should be fun. Yeah, so much fun. And then your customer feedback. How are you going about that? Is that happening through email? Is it happening on social? Yeah, so everything. Yeah. Every touch point. So um, every time somebody makes a purchase, we send them a survey two weeks after. Um, you know, why did you purchase us? What do you like about them? How are you wearing them? How is the fit, etc.? Um, and then obviously through social media, it's a great way to have a two-way dialogue with customers. We have so many people messaging us directly or publicly asking us for new silhouettes, new colors, new materials, um, and then also complaining. We love the complaints. Um, we prefer those private. Yes. Uh, but at times we do th get them publicly, whether it's... Um, you know, my shoes haven't arrived on time and there's shipping warehouse issues um, or the fit is wrong. And so it's actually helped us be able to scale really fast, getting that immediate information um, so that we can quickly make those corrections and, and solve the problem faster. Yeah. Who's answering those, I guess? complaints or uh, concerns on yeah. social media? Is it a social media team or is it like customer service? I feel like those those worlds probably have to mesh these days. They, they do. And it is complicated. Sometimes I'm like, how come we haven't answered this person? And it's sort of like an in-between customer service and, and influencer or social. 
Um, it's a combination. I mean, yeah. I came from Facebook and Instagram, so na- I naturally gravitate towards being on those platforms and I'm constantly monitoring it. Um, a lot of times I'm the one responding on behalf of birdies, which is uh, somewhat surprising, I think, to some people to hear. Um, but we do have customer service team, uh, a, a fairly robust team. and But from social media perspective, we actually just hired our first social media person ever. She started last Tuesday. We are so happy to have her. Um, This is after a couple of years of everybody sort of pitching in and doing it together. So if you haven't seen any Instagram highlights up until now and you think, (laughs) gosh, this is so strange that a company this size does not have that, this is the reason why. And hopefully in another few weeks, we will start having more highlights, more stories, um, and, you know, higher quality posts perhaps. Amazing. So up till now, it was you, it was your team. Yeah. I mean, are you going to miss that very, uh, I don't Uh, know, having uh, that control and kind of that, uh, I guess, I don't know, influence on what what goes out there? You know what? It's always going to be a big part of my heart. Um, It is our direct connection to the customer. So I should never be far removed from that. Although now I'll have a team that, that can help share more insights that they're finding on the platforms. Um, Certainly it's not going to be me day to day, but every time I'm walking somewhere, I'm scrolling through and I'm jumping in to see all the ads we have on the platform. What are people saying? um, And making sure that we're responding in a timely manner. Yes. Are you, will this new hire be very completely focused on Instagram to me? Yeah. Well, she's going to be focused on Instagram. Definitely. Um, As I mentioned, stories and, um, and those highlights reels. But we're starting to find we have communities on, that are forming on Facebook, for example, and other platforms that are birdies obsessed. And so, you know, I think it'd be fun for her to jump on and introduce herself and get some more qualitative data. What are they saying? Why are they obsessed? What are we missing? Um, and, and also serve them in a way that they can become our, our greater ambassadors by having a direct connection with them. That's so cool. So up till now, you've been very hands off with these groups. No involvement. Have you no guys involvement. started any of these? No. Okay. No. And they're popping up. And so I'm like, gosh, here's a party. Let's go. (laughs) You know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We just need to go where people are and they're leaning in and and just sort of, you know, spark a conversation with them and learn from them and then hopefully grow that over time. Definitely. I feel like your shoes are made for Instagram. And you said they were made to be uh, worn indoors at at first. Yep. They're kind of made to be seen. Can you tell me about the statement factor? Um, I feel like there's maybe a fine line where people, you know, if it's a statement piece, maybe you can't wear it all the time. Yep. Or maybe you can. Yeah. You know, it's been an evolution. We started off by solving the problem of what to wear when you're at home entertaining. So think living room, dining room, kitchen. There have long been pajama slippers and there have long been outdoor shoes, but we were all walking around barefoot or in pajama slippers or in socks while entertaining friends and family. So I wanted something that was fun and delightful. When you open your front door, you say, hello, here's your glass of wine, kick off your heels, put on your birdies, have a good time, um, but deliciously comfortable on the inside that just felt like home. So we, we sort of launched with something, you know, sort of special and different. Turns out she was wearing us everywhere. And so we needed to sort of evolve the brand a little bit and offer her something for everyday wear while still offering her those pops of fun. Um, so, you know, we have our classic black uh, starling, um, which is like my uniform shoe, basically. It goes with everything and delicious. This is the black velvet heron I'm wearing today. Lovely. Thought I'd dress it up a little bit more for you. <laughs> Representing. Um 
But we do have those playful ones. We launched in November ones with feathers all over. And those were just so glam and sexy. And, you know, that's when you want to pour a martini. You go from a glass of wine to martini. Um, But for everyday wear, we do have um, the black starling, the, the, the heron. Um, those are that's like our basic foundational show. Got it. Who is your customer? So she's this. Maybe she's a hostess with the most. <laughs> we thought she's she fabulous. was. We thought she was, and it turns out she's this like rule maker, rule breaker. You know, she does not want to be bucketed into fashionista or or just mom or homemaker. She's a badass. Yes. Um, she's bright. She's happy. She's the connector. She's bold. Um, and she needs a shoe that can keep up with her active day. So she's going to work. Then she's picking up groceries. Then maybe she's making dinner for her partner or her children. Um, she needs an everyday shoe that can keep up with her lifestyle that makes her feel comfortable yes. um, and cozy but looks good. So. She demographically, she's 25 to 85. Oh my gosh. I am not kidding. And it is like across the board. Um, her income ranges from $50,000 a year to $250,000 a year. And she is spread across the country fairly evenly, although we do rotate heavily in New York City, okay. um, which is why we're launching our focus groups here to really understand, you know, why is she one of our top customers living out here? Is it the fashion that she wants? Is it the comfort that she wants? Is it the everyday versatility that she's that she's desiring? So learning more from her here, but it's a pretty broad demographic. And no matter how old you are, you always want to be fashionable. And no matter how young you are, you want to be comfortable. Absolutely. Let's talk. She's also Meghan Markle. <laughs> she's also. I have to go there. Meghan Markle. Talk about the, the power of Meghan Markle and oh her being um, an early fan and what that did for the brand. She's incredible. I mean, as a brand, we support her. As a person, I support her. You know, the reality is we started Birdies. um, My co-founder and I each had $50,000. Not a lot to start a shoe company. I had a full-time job at Facebook, two little kids, and a three-hour day commute to the office and back. Um, So we were strapped for time and strapped for money. And when we received our first batch of Birdies um, at the end of 2015, we thought, you know, if we were to part with one pair, because we had to sell every pair to make our money back to really see if this was a thing. If we were to part with one pair of birdies, who would we gift these to and why? And so we went through this exercise of all of these celebrities and influencers and, and people that we thought really depicted the brand. And we ultimately landed on Meghan Markle, who at the time, you know, was on a TV show called Suits. It, 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 and it's a great show. Yeah. But she wasn't, you know, this mega movie star that you would think this is who I want. What we wanted as a brand is somebody that embodied who we wanted to be when we grew up. So as a brand, as Birdie is our customer, she's warm, she's happy, she's ambitious, she gives back to her community. Um, she She's not one-dimensional, she's multi-dimensional. And, um, and, and somebody that you just want to have a cocktail with. Um, yeah. And that is Birdie. So we were like, this is the person. Um, and so we uh, found a way to contact her and gift her a pair of Birdies. You know, once that happens, there's no guarantee, no promises. And all of a sudden, we I think we had like a thousand people following us on Instagram. And it was like my mom and her friends and, you know, any friends we had. And she starts wearing us. And I think she had close to a million followers at the time. And she would tag us. And nice. we're like, this is wild. This is the first time something big has happened. And it and it really, it you know what it did? It, it made editors care about us and tell our story at a bigger scale. It had people, you know, thinking, wow, th- this is a cool shoe. Yep. 
the irony is, while she was wearing it, and we loved that she was wearing it, she was always wearing our shoes outside. I was going to ask. So on the set, you know, strolling down the streets of Manhattan, going grocery shopping, and we were like, what the heck? This is an awesome moment. At the same time, everybody's asking us about this shoe, and we're a slipper. So it was one of those things where you're just like, gosh darn it, if I could really script this out, it'd be helpful. And not knowing that she ended up taking our brand from an indoor shoe to being a competitive brand in the outdoor shoe market as well. Yeah. Um, so fast forward, she's wearing us a couple uh, um, for a couple of years. And then we see her wearing her birdies on the streets of London. And she's uh, posting herself there. And we're like, gosh. And there was speculation that she was dating Prince Harry. And we're like, come on. I mean, this would just be too good too good to be true for us <laughs> as a brand. And on Cyber Monday, I'll never forget this, they announced their engagement. And I'll never forget it was Cyber Monday because we we're already, already gearing up for a pretty big day. Yeah. And... Um, I woke up at six in the morning and the first thing I do is check sales. Second thing I do is check Instagram to see what's driving those sales. And I was like, what the heck? We're sold out. We're sold out of everything. And our wait list was going from 5,000 to 7,000 to 10,000 to 25,000 people. And so I go to Instagram and I'm like, what is driving this? And the press went wild with, you know, her favorite brands and it was a slipper fit for a princess. Oh my God. And it just changed the trajectory of our business ever since. And ever since becoming the Duchess, she's worn us a few times and, you know, just that type of PR, that type of endorsement from somebody who we really do believe embodies us as a brand and who we are as founders, um, cannot be bought. And we are so grateful to everything that she has done for us. And, um, we are cheering her on in this next phase of, of her life. Are you gifting her a lot? <laughs> you know, the the one downside of becoming a princess was there was like zero contact, zero gifting. I think they had to buy everything that they oh, were wearing. God, yeah. Um, and so now, I, you know, I don't know. Like now there might be some opportunity to re-engage with her. I hope so. If she's listening to this, Megan, <laughs> call me. I hope she's listening to the Glossy podcast if she knows what's good. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so she, she has done for us as a brand what I hope to carry forward to other young budding entrepreneurs and helping them with our platform. Platform. Definitely. Did you lean into that with your marketing? I know a lot of um, you started with a lot of user generated mm-hmm. content that really uh, was something you leaned on early on. It was very sensitive with Megan after she became a duchess. I mean, early on, we didn't have many followers anyways. And so, you know, her wearing us was 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 amazing. And, and I did post on my personal Facebook and Instagram that she was wearing us. And I think we might have posted a couple of times on, on Instagram. Once becoming a duchess, though, it became very sensitive. And, you know, there were rumors already starting that she was uncomfortable with the way the press was treating her. Um, and so, you know, we had a lot of meetings internally about this is an amazing moment. She's announcing her pregnancy, wearing her birdies in the Redwood Forest in New Zealand. It's a beautiful photo, beautiful moment. It's a fine line between letting people know and celebrating that moment and capitalizing on it. Yes. Very fine line. And so other brands were spending a lot of money to you know, tell that story when she would wear them. And we made a decision that we were just not going to do that. And the decision was we have to be such a big brand greater than one person. And we're so grateful and thankful to her for what she's done for us and what she is doing for us. But we cannot capitalize on on a human being who's already feeling tormented in the press yep. um, and feeling like we're using her now as well. And so we took the, a different approach. And to be honest, it was really frustrating to see other brands lean into that and um, when Megan did wear us the second time in Morocco, um, everybody started commenting that these aren't her favorite shoes because the other brand had already claimed that she was wearing them. And I'm sitting there reading the headlines and I'm thinking, she's worn us so many more times than these other footwear brands. And because yeah. they've capitalized on it, now they're known for that shoe. 
And I just said, again, we have to think bigger and work harder because if this is the best we're ever going to be, then then that's it. So yeah. um, I had to just bite my tongue and let it be. And and you know what? I'm glad I did because at the end of the day, your reputation is everything and having that relationship with her, letting her know that we were not willing to do that um, in support of her feels right today and, and will forever. Yeah. And if you don't if you don't call out that she's wearing them, I mean, people in life and style will anyway. Right. <laughs> Let's be real. Right. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Let's circle back to the very beginning. How did you meet Marissa? Who's your business partner? And where did Andy Dunn, speaking of Andy Dunn, where did mm-hmm. he come in? Great question. It's all very interconnected. Um, Marissa and I met when we were both living in Manhattan 100 years ago. And um, at the time, we were connected because our boyfriends at the time were going to Stanford Business School together. This was back in 2005. Okay. So they were on the West Coast, we're on the East Coast, and our partners were like, hey, you two should meet. They were also going to business school with Andy Dunn. Same class. They were all besties. Um, And this was pre-Bonobos. I think Bonobos started in 2007. Um, And so Marissa and I hit it off. When you meet her, you're going to see we are both very different people, but we share a common goal of um, being loving and kind and your reputation means everything. Your word is everything honest and trustworthy. But she is the yin to my yang. Um, She's uh, super fun, uh, very different though. So we met, we were friends. We um, Then we subsequently both moved to the West Coast um, and I took a job at Facebook and um, she was kind of exploring new ideas. And that's when I was like, listen, I'm having this like crazy slipper problem when I'm entertaining. I'm always like in socks and bare feet. And she's like, me too. So we decided to venture and do this together, not knowing the benefit of really being that yin and yang team. As you can tell, I'm a little bit more, you know, uh, Fabulous and well, just, you know, wild. I don't know. Sales and, you know, that's not my background. Um, and she really, she grounds me. She's she's the, um, the brains behind it all. And so for anybody thinking about starting a company and, and thinking about, you know, who's the right co-founder, I would say lean into somebody who is great at the things that you're not good at. Nice. Because um, that is a, the best compliment. So um, we started this when I was still working at Facebook, honestly not thinking this would ever be a thing. And um, after five years at Facebook, I took a two-month sabbatical. This was now two years into, into birdies. And at Facebook, every employee gets like two months off um, yes. after five years there. And so instead of traveling Europe, like many of my colleagues did, I decided to lean into birdies full time and see if I gave more of my time into birdies, would this thing really grow bigger? And it did. And so I remember I went back to my office, to my desk um, in January of 2017. And I remember sitting there thinking, I am so conflicted. That was so much fun. Yes. And we saw the impact of me, of me jumping in and helping out more what do I do? On the other hand, I'm working at the best company in the world. I believe that mission-driven company. I'm making a big paycheck, which is very valuable to my family. And by the way, I love my job. And so as I'm thinking about what to do, I get an email from Andy Dunn two weeks later. And on the subject line, it says $100,000. And I remember opening it up and I'm like, what's this? (laughs) And he's like, I am hearing about birdies in various pockets around Manhattan. I think this thing is going to be huge. I'd like to write you a check for $100,000 and I'd like to help you raise a seed round for this. And I just thought to myself, wait, like There's people want to invest money in this? This could be a business? Um, and I went home that night and I showed my husband and I'm like, I can't take people's money unless I'm 100% committed to this, which means leaving my job. Am I ready to leave my job? 
And so we started to look at different data points. And okay, there were sales, editors were talking about us, celebrities were wearing us, people now want to invest. And I thought, I, I guess this is kind of that moment where you just take that leap of faith. And um, I walked into Cheryl's off, Cheryl Sandberg's office, who'd become a, a great friend and mentor of mine. And I just said, I, I'm thinking about like doing this full time. Am I crazy? I was in tears. And she's like, you know what? You're not going to fail. But if you ever feel like coming back, we will always have you back. And awesome. so it was all of this vote of confidence across the board that really made me feel like I should at least uh, scratch that itch and go for it. Um, and Andy helped connect us with amazing people. Forerunner Ventures, Kirsten Green, yes. um, led the the seed round later that summer. And it's just been a wild ride ever since. So we're very grateful to him. Ironically, he is not an investor in Birdies, oh. which I joke about because at the time when we were finally pulling this stuff together... Walmart was getting ready to buy oh, Bonobos and he could not make any more investments. So the greatest irony of all is he's helped us build this thing and, and he never got a chance to invest. But I don't know, maybe tonight at dinner we can we can change that. Remember when you were dangling $100,000 right. in front of me? Right, right. And then you never ended up investing. Now look at us. I'm Pop sure he's up. kicking himself over that one. Yeah. Big mistake. But Huge. I'll be nice. I'll be nice. I'll let him in. <laughs> Definitely. We'll see. So since then, let's talk about your approach to fundraising. So uh, you had that seed round. 2017, yeah. early 2019, yeah. another 8 million. Are you, um, yeah. I know you, have you still got a large wait list going? Does building on that or kind of moving faster, scaling, does that just mean another round? What does it mean? That's a great question. We're actually debating that right now in real time. Um, the wonderful thing is we have a lot of great investors who are leaning in who want to lead the next round. Um, which is exciting. I mean, every founder, it just feels like, you know, this is so great that people love what you're doing and they see the vision that you want to create. On the other hand, you know, I've seen so many direct-to-consumer companies raise so much money to to get to that unicorn status so fast. And, you know, it r reminds me a little bit of the housing market back in 2005, six, and seven, when everybody was buying homes and you're like, gosh, how is everyone affording all these homes? It seems crazy. Like they're, they're selling you a home. You don't even have a job. <laughs> this is just nuts. And you're like, just instinctually things just felt out of balance. And I stayed back. I did not purchase a home during that craze. I kept saving money, making money. And then when the real estate market collapsed in 2008, 2009, I had the cash and I was able to, to buy my first home at the perfect time. And so this, you know, sort of feels the same way. There's just investors with a lot of money that they need to deploy pretty quickly. There's a lot of startup entrepreneurs who need the capital. And it's just, it's kind of just like funny math right now. Yes. And so when I really think about, and this is where Marissa really is helpful, she grounds us, you know, it's, we have great gross margins. We have a great business. We uh, don't need to hire 100 people because technology allows us to scale very efficiently. And so, like, how much do you really need? So I debate this, like, TechCrunch article, this glossy article where Birdies raises $30 million. And we're like, yeah, we're competing with these other guys, especially as two women. You're like, we're just as good, if not better. Yep. And then on the other side, I say, if we're just as good, if not better, wouldn't the headline be better that, you know, we are a big company and had only raised, you know, a certain amount of money? So it's that constant conflict. Um, we do want to open stores. And so that does require some capital. So I think the question is, you know, how much to raise? I think there will, there will be a need to raise. And, and really the question is, how big do we want to get? How big do we think we can get? And how much do we need to get there? Yeah. Talk about uh, technology to scale. What's happening there? Oh, I love technology. <laughs> it is just sexy. It really is. I mean, 
listen, 10 years ago when Andy Dunn started Bonobos um, with Brian Spaley, they had to spend a lot of money and give up equity to start a website. Yes. Today, you can put, you know, 30 bucks a month, you can have a Shopify site, drop in some iPhone photos, and voila, you have a website. They take credit card payment. You don't have to have a third-party company do that. I mean, it's incredible. You want to understand what your customers and non-customers are saying? You use Instagram. You use Facebook. It's like, it's just, we can move so fast now. You can build community. Uh, Whereas five, six years ago, even not that long ago, it was so hard to do that. Um, So we love technology. Um, we lean on it every day. We're a direct-to-consumer company um, enabled through technology. Um, we use this across the board in our, in our organization. In fact, um, we just onboarded um, a company called NextRep who has stay-at-home parents be customer service people. Nice. Because in this day and age, you know, when you're home with your kids and you have a, a window of time, um, how do you, you know, what what job can you do? And so we have we're we're hiring them across the country to become customer service people for birdies. Um, and the only way you can do that is through technology. Yep. Right. So so we're able to kind of rewrite the roles, scale faster, um, and be less capital intensive in order to do so. Awesome. Talk about your sales channels right now. Um, I know Katie on my team a while back, I'm not sure if you're still doing this, um, covered a company you were working with. I guess it enables... Uh, individuals, maybe influencer types to set up their own or curate their own marketplaces. Yes. And uh, Birdies yes. was a yes. brand that was available to, yes. to sell through their marketplace. Is that still happening? It is still happening. Um, you know, I think you, long ago you needed to have a movie star to wear your shoes and then, you know, a TV star. And then, you know, and then there became these like mega influencers on Instagram and then these micro influencers. And I think it's just going down to everyday people, you know, what are they wearing? And if you know, if Beyonce is wearing our shoes, that would be amazing, by the way. <laughs> but but there's no better validation than a close friend yes. wearing them. And if one of your besties is wearing birdies, all of a sudden it makes you think twice about it. So we want to have more of a of a touch point, you know, on the ground with real people being our ambassadors. Um, and we also believe that they should be compensated in order to do so. So we're trying to find that that mix of how do we compensate them and how yeah. do we how do we work with real people who are real influencers amongst their communities? Makes sense. One store, one store for now. Yes. <laughs> if you had your way, uh, how many stores would would open this year? If just maybe slow rollouts. Um, you know, I would say thoughtful rollout. Yes. Um, so New York is our number one customer base. So I would say the next store is definitely going to be here. The question is how many stores here? I mean, New York is just, I always forget how many people there are here. <laughs> and and people don't want to commute, you know, downtown, uptown, east side, west side. So I think legitimately we could have three stores in, in New York City, to be honest. But, Amazing. you know, maybe we start with one. I don't know. Um <laughs> Los Angeles is another big market, but you know that that's a difficult city. There's it's so spread out, um, so probably another two to three stores there, um, and you know uh, yeah, and just kind of see what happens there. Tesla. So I'd like to roll out you know three to five stores in the next year. Yeah, see how those do, um, and then continue on. Awesome. Facebook and Instagram. What else are you doing for marketing? What's working? Uh, what's a, working to acquire customers? You know what? Like what's old is new, and yeah. what's new is old. I'm. Like, of course, I love Facebook and Instagram. They're great. We tried direct mail at the end of the year and just shocked at how well that did. Oh, yeah. Email. Yes. Every time we send an email, twice a week, three times a week, there's a massive pop. So 
I like to say what's old is new, what's new is old. And I think you have to supplement it with all these other platforms for sure. Um, but this gets me wanting to think about, you know, um, radio again. Oh, yeah. And podcasts is yeah. like the thing right now in the DTC community. Um, I don't know, TV. It's just, it's like, it like really what's old is new, what's new is old. So email works really well for us. Um, and uh, print. We t- tested print in uh, December, the December issue, and that did really well for us. What what sort of magazines? Um, like the big glossy yeah. magazines, uh, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, we thought it would serve as a, a brand moment versus direct response. But, you know, I think when you're following a young brand and you see them in a traditional um, media touch point, you kind of feel like, well, if they can afford to be in this or if they're in this, they must be okay. They must be good. Um, we also started working with Nordstrom. Yes. We sell them a very limited amount. Okay. Um, but I think that's also another way for us to to get our, our name out there. And again, if you've been considering us online, um, the fact that Nordstrom carries us is sort of like that endorsement that, yes, they're, they're a good shoe and, and you should consider them. Absolutely. Talk about your background at Facebook. And did that give you kind of a head start kind totally. of knowing that? Yeah, talk about it. So I was in media sales my entire career. I was at Viacom, Univision. Um, and when I moved to San Francisco, I knew I wanted to work at a big company whose headquarters were where I lived. I, I did not want to work at a satellite office. So I was an avid user of the platform. And um, after six months of interviewing there, because I was a TV person, they were like, what are you doing in a tech company? I was like, I don't know. I can figure it out. How hard could it be? Um, I got the job. And... I started to um, work with retailers. Um, And so I was leading retail partnerships, getting companies like Gap and Williams-Sonoma and Adidas and Nordstrom to use the platform to connect with their their customers. And um, I was acting like a consultant. I was meeting with their CMOs, their CTOs, their CIOs. And while on their earnings calls, they would talk about being mobile first, they just were not set up to do that internally. They had their um, their digital team would work in one office. Their brand team, their in-store team would work in another. People weren't talking to each other. They couldn't understand how to integrate this new technology with their older technology. Um, creative, for example, they were shooting these big, beautiful photo shoots with models. That doesn't work on Instagram. On a small square, on a small mobile device, you need something shot completely different, which meant a new creative agency, a new way of shooting. So it wasn't as easy to say, we're just going to take what we're doing for TV and put it on here. They really had to start from scratch. And they weren't willing to do that fast enough. And I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, I know what could happen if you just did this. And so for years, I was like, you're not moving fast enough. I know you think you get it, but in order to tell the 200 people that need to think differently, it's going to take forever. Um, at the time, they didn't want to share their email file to connect with their customers on Facebook and Instagram. So I was like, you're limiting yourselves. So I think it was all of that understanding of yeah. how easy and turnkey this could be, but how difficult it was for the traditional retailers. And having this idea for this social slipper, knowing that I could leapfrog over and, and quickly scale a business was worth a try. Yeah. And um, I, you know, we started it without any advertising dollars on Facebook and Instagram. And it started to work. So then I was like, oh my gosh, this this could be big. Like what else can we sell? What else can we make? Because this is the future. And um, you know, the bigger retailers are having a hard time. I think they recognize the need for it now, many years later, but I think it's really trying to figure out how to restructure internally to to sort of scale up with new technology today. Yes. Talk about that kind of need, want, desire to say, ooh, let's make 
way more stuff. This is great. <laughs> this is easy. The focus on the slipper. I know you've expanded your your category, your yeah. assortment. Um, yeah. What's the what's the grow out? I guess. I, you know, we wanted, we loved being a slipper. We wanted to, we wanted to just encourage more entertaining at home with kids, with family, with friends. Turns out she was wearing us everywhere and complaining that the rubber sole was not thick enough. And we were like, well, that's because they're not meant to be worn outside. And so it took an intern two years ago to go through a lot of the um, data that we were collecting on people's behavior with their product to say, it's, we shouldn't be telling them that they shouldn't wear them outside. We should be making a product that could deliver outside. Yes. And so it was that moment as a founder where you're like, how do you know when to stay focused on the problem you're set out to solve? And when do you pivot based on customer behavior and need? Um, and so when we started to test our velvet slipper shoes with a thicker sole, just the business exploded. It really exploded. And so that's when we realized, okay, maybe we're bigger than, you know, just indoor slippers. Yeah. Maybe we do that and we start to become more competitive outdoors because her life is in and out all day long and she shouldn't have to change her shoes for that. So we started to test with different materials, like a suede that was more conducive to outdoor. Um, and then we launched leather. And what we're learning is she wants something really deliciously comfortable on the inside that looks attractive on the outside, plain and simple. And so we are now this year... Um, expanding our line to produce many more options for her Great. and to keep up with her daily life, different materials, different silhouettes. Um, we have those fun, unique ones, but we also have like a good foundational set of products um, that we're pulsing throughout the year that we're really excited about. Wait and see. Can't wait. wait and see. <laughs> but we're going to stay in footwear for the foreseeable future as there's a huge opportunity still just there. Great. I feel like you got in before the getting was good in terms of... Um, Footwear sales are booming. Online footwear sales are really driving that. Um, and also there's this move toward more comfortable yeah. apparel, kind of hangout at home. Yeah. I almost said Netflix and chill, but I hear that's like Totally. Nasty. Right, right. <laughs> it's for not our demographic, piece. we take that literal. But for a younger demographic, it's something totally different. <laughs> <laughs> because you were so early in the game, uh, competitors have popped up. How do you kind of continue to differentiate and to kind of uh, build on this momentum? Yeah, and know, are you worried about that going away? Well, I am the customer. You yeah. know, this is why we need more women to design for women. This isn't like this aha moment where I'm like, oh, the data shows that women like comfortable and stylish footwear. Like, no kidding. That's been a problem forever. Yeah. It just so happens I was waiting for somebody else to solve the problem only to realize... I might as well solve the problem myself. So this is like a call to action for more women to design for other women because we know what we want and we're going to continue to evolve because we are the customer. We know what else we need. We know what else is in the market and we know what's missing in the market and how and how to produce something that solves that void that women are looking for. Um, you know, men are awesome. I love our men. But when they're making stuff for women and they're not living in our shoes, how can they possibly know what's next? Yes. We know what's next. We know, we know what next. we need. <laughs> All women working with you? What large percentage? You know, um, our board is all women. Nice. And the I board just did has a said, you know, and the lack of female women in boards. Go ahead. Well, and our board was like, you know, we probably need some more diversity. I mean, <laughs> and I'm like, you, you mean we need men? I'm like, this is a this is a great challenge. Like, finally, the conversation is shifting. And you know what? They're totally right. Um, so. Um, we have hired some men internally, and they have been fantastic. I really believe it needs to be close to 50-50, as, as much as I'm pro-women everything. We do need a balance. They bring something different to the table. Um, and so we are 
thinking about adding another member to our board um, and hopefully a man. Um, at the end of the day, you want somebody that understands the business. But I think that, you know, men will bring a different um, idea and thinking to, to the business. So we love our men. Yes. We uh, want to hire more of them. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what's happening uh, in terms of the culture, uh, cor- the structure within your within the workplace? Uh, how are What are you doing to kind of change it up before you kind of mentioned the stale the stale model it's oh, it's so hard you know when you start a company we started in our garage my 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 parents are here this week so that I could have some family companionship in my two-week journey and we're at dinner last night with my co-founder and they're like do you remember two years ago you were packing your cars up going to trunk shows in Marin and in the East Bay setting up a little Costco table and trying to sell one shoe at a time and I was like god that was only two years ago and he's like yeah and so you go from that and, and doing everything yourself to making your first few hires to opening your first office, which we had, which is above our store on Union Street. And then that got full. It, we had about 12 people. And so we just moved to bigger offices downtown. But there was a little bit of a, of a shift in culture. You know, you start in this like sweet little home um, to a big corporate office. You start to bring in like senior executives in and it just starts to feel different. And I think for me, one thing I hadn't thought through fast enough was the shift that I had to make as a, as a leader. I was start, you know, I was like an individual contributor, everybody grab an oar, we're all going to row to, okay, we need some leadership. And, um, and you know, I, I talk a lot about when you get married, when you have a baby, there's this, there's this ceremony that happens where you go from being this to being that in a startup, there's no ceremony. Like nobody told me all of a sudden I was this like CEO leader, right? Like I was still the same person, but yet people's perception of me was changing yeah. and it took me a while to, to catch up. And, you know, it was a hard time for me. I would say I spent many months just, almost, I mean, in tears at times, just feeling like people were asking me, well, what's the culture here? And what's your expectation? And what's the process? <gasps> the question about process. I'm like, there is no process. Just do the work, <laughs> just work. I don't know, just go. And I was like, you know what? That's not that's not fair to them. I they deserve better. And so I joined an organization called YPO okay. um, at the end of last year, where other presidents um, get together and they talk about organizational structure and their stresses and opportunities. And I felt like there was a deficit in my leadership in that area. Um, as you know, I'm like a salesperson, externally focused partnerships. And so for me to sort of rotate inward um, was a big shift for me. But um, happy to say that we are smooth sailing now. Nice. Um, at around 20 or so people, I hit that point where I needed some help and um, I got the help. It's going to be a journey for sure forever. But um, it's also fun to be able to evolve as a person and realize, gosh, you're not so great at everything. And where do I need to where I need where do I need some self-help? And find that help and then, you know, grow to the next phase. So I don't know, maybe next year, who knows what the next challenge is going to be. But I'm, I'm up for the challenge. Right on. 2020, uh, we know we have a new social media manager. <laughs> What's oh, the next hire? Oh, my gosh. Well, so a lot. But um, one of the things that's also crept up on us is over 30% of our customers are repeat purchasers and we're not doing anything to focus on retention. So we've built out a, a, a strong growth team, head of growth, head of acquisition, um, supporting acquisition. And now we look at the data and, and we're a sizable company now in terms of revenue. And if 30 plus percent of that revenue is coming from repeat purchasers and nobody has a plan to really talk to them specifically, that's a problem. So our next big hire is going to be a retention person. Nice. Future of fashion is comfort. Our heels out the door. 
I love heels. I mean, I do. I, I call them my sitting shoes. If, I, if I'm planning <laughs> to sit all night and look good, I wear my heels. No, heels are fun. But, you know, they're they're meant to be when you're, you know, out having a good time in a long dress and it just adds to your outfit. But I think every day when I was living in Manhattan and I'd go from building to building with my with my team, mainly men, and they're walking fast and I'm in heels and they're they're telling me to keep up and I have my, you know, my big heavy bag. Right. They, don't ha- they don't even have a bag. And I just felt like I was, I was, I could not keep up. And that has an effect on you. And now if I can wear, you know, a great pair of pants and a button down shirt and my birdies, I'm going to be telling them to keep up. Yes. Right. So I think it, it, it there's a, there's a, an opportunity for heels for sure. Women love to look fabulous at times, but you know, in those moments when you're not trying to like, you know, be all dressy and heels and stuff, um, flats are um, a superpower that we, that have been underused for a long time with women. And, and now we're realizing how great they are. Flats are a superpower. It may be the title of this podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, Bianca. Thank so you. Fun. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please head to the review section on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to give us a rating and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.